talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining us on this episode is a man that's been to over 20 baseball Canada National Championships, has attended the World Junior Championship in Sherbrooke, Quebec in 2002, was longtime Prince Edward Island Baseball Umpire Association Provincial Supervisor, and a guy that's never tried a popsicle, Kent Walker. Topics we cover are umpiring in Prince Edward Island, some of the learning experiences he's had that have helped him get to the international level, and his current project in regards to writing a book about umpire mentoring. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming. Fun baseball fact. Major League Baseball comprises of 30 teams in 27 different cities that play 2,430 games in a 780 series season that spans the length of six months. In order to ensure that every game is officiated during a regular non-pandemic season, it is estimated that each umpire will travel 35,000 miles throughout the length of a season. Now, I know some of you out there are licking your chops going, ooh, the mileage bill, but guess what? It's all covered by their travel agent, and there's a whole process to do it. But if you're really interested in learning about the science in how scheduling umpires occur, check out the link in our show description from the journal Interfaces called Scheduling Major League Baseball Umpires and the Traveling Umpire Problem. Now that we've got the travel concerns out of the way, welcome back to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Now, before we get too deep into this episode's guest, let's take a stroll down memory lane and head back to the last episode where we brought on British Columbia Baseball Umpire Association Provincial Supervisor Steve Butang. Now, if you haven't heard that show, here's what you missed. T12 is a tournament that I wish every umpire in Canada could get an opportunity to go and participate in. The Blue Jays are such a first-class organization the best part of the tournament actually was the quality of play and the team USA that year had a handful of guys who ended up playing in the big leagues. And one of them of course was Steven Strasburg and he had this slider like something I'd never seen before. And he said, but I have to ask him a question. I said, do you think that he knows what, what he's doing back there? And Just remember that Ronnie and Haji, they had to get in an 18 passenger van and drive 18 hours. Oh my gosh. That was Never, no, you wouldn't catch me dead in that. But we get to the umpires meeting and uh, they inform us that a typhoon is about to strike land. Really, I'm going to go stand behind there with no jock on? And there's no chance I'm wearing his. And, so, you know, I have to have a certain level of, of decency here. We, we call it this year a uh, super clinic umpiring across Canada. And so this will be the first time ever that we've done a joint super clinic that every single province is participating in. Wow. When we talk United, isn't it exciting that for the first time ever, 2021, in the midst of a pandemic, that every province is going to receive top quality umpire instruction so that we can be united and we can have the same message delivered from coast to coast. Who says that the pandemic hasn't brought people together? Because I tell you, it is exciting. So if you're looking for that super clinic information, check in with your local or provincial umpire association, how you can be part of this monumental event, or check out superclinic.ca for more information. 
Now, before we get to this episode and this interview with Kent Walker, just want to plug the Facebook Leading Edge Umpire Stories, where you can find us. You can click, share, like it, do all that fun stuff. Please get the word out and share some fantastic stories from some great umpires from around this country. Also, if you're looking for the various platforms where you can find this podcast, you know that you can listen to it wherever you're listening to it right now, or you can share it through Apple iTunes Podcast, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, and most recently, YouTube. So just go to wherever you like to pod, search Leading Edge Umpire Stories, and you should be able to find that blue logo. Okay, enough with the shameless plugs. Let's get to it. So without further ado, we're excited to bring on our first guest from Prince Edward Island, longtime Prince Edward Island Baseball Umpire Association Provincial Supervisor, and a guy that dated Anna Green Gables in grade 10, Kent Walker. Kent, welcome to the Leading Edge. How you doing, Phil? Kent, I am doing fabulous. Thanks for asking. And right off the bat, I got to say thank you for coming on and being our first guest from the beautiful island of Prince Edward. That makes nine out of 10 provinces featured here on the Leading Edge. So we're well on our way there. Can't lie. I'm really excited about where this is going to go today. Great to be here. And I hope you'll have more from PEI. We've got a, a good program and lots of people with lots of good things to say. Oh, well, I'm interested to hear what you got to say tonight. So one of the first things we like to do here on the leading edge is we like to give the guests the opportunity to defend themselves as a player because sometimes they say bad players make great umpires and you have a great resume. So share with us what it was like growing up playing baseball or if you did play baseball. Oh, I played. I played since I was 10. I, uh, I caught from first day. A pitcher said, uh, I, I'm pitching today. I got no catcher who wants to catch. Nobody else said anything. So I said, I will. After the game, he said, you did a really good job. Hope you do it again kind of thing so with that positive reinforcement i stayed with it didn't just to deviate for a second i didn't start umpire until i was done playing pretty much and i was done playing at 32. i played a lot and had a lot of fun with it and uh, learned a lot well it sounds like a lot of umpires were catchers at one time now one of the things i like to ask is when you were a catcher were you a better umpire as a catcher than you are now no i was very mild-mannered which is good because I got to say a lot of the umpires I had were questionable. <laughs> there was, there was a couple of times we had one umpire all the time for our home games who liked to call balls in the dirt strikes, but he was consistent. And even as a catcher, when you, you want that pitch, of course, for your, for your pitcher. But I, after a while I was shaking my head saying, this isn't fun anymore when he's calling those. So it got frustrating, but I, I never got ejected for arguing with an umpire. It, it just wasn't worth it to me. That was his opinion, whether it was a ball or strike. I just, my job was to catch it and throw it back. That sounds like a cricket umpire, you know, bouncing and coming up through the zone. Almost. He could, if, if they hit the dirt before it went in my glove, it could still be called a strike for sure. I tell you that that's the definition of the bottom of the hollow of the knee, as they say. Yeah, that? really. <laughs> we're, and we're not talking a 12 to 6 curveball here either. Straight heater. Straight heater. So during your playing days, any memorable provincial or national championships that you partook in? You know, PEI is a small province. We had maybe four or five teams uh, in midget and junior, and we were, the Charlottetown team was, as I remember it anyway, we were uh, provincial champs almost every year that I played in those five, six years of uh, midget and junior, uh, 18U and 21U. The problem back then was uh, the provincial champion it never went to the national championships. It was a it was a maritime champion. Okay. 
So we never got to go to a national championship because we always lost out in the maritime playoffs. Right. The only time I got to a national championship was with the Canada Games in 77 in Newfoundland. So that year, did PEI send a team? Yes, PEI sent a team. So Canada Games was a little bit exclusive where every province sent a team every time, essentially. Yeah. And our claim to fame that year was we beat Saskatchewan, <laughs> which... As far when I as I remember it, they won the silver medal that year, and we finished about one and three, one and four. But that was the team we beat, the silver medalists. Okay, you're jogging my memory here. I definitely wasn't around at that time, but we had a previous guest on the last season. Goes by the name of David Bucky Buckingham. He shared with us some stories about playing in the Canada Games in Newfoundland. Any chance that you guys competed against each other, or at least were there at the same time? We would have been there at the same time then. Yeah, I don't think we played newfoundland bucky said he was a good ball player can you can you defend him at all or no i never saw him play but uh whatever bucky said is the god's truth you can be guaranteed of that well since that episode there's been a lot of people that have reached out and have said some wonderful things about bucky so i'll take your word for it so kent you say that you played till about 32 and then decided to hang it up how did you make the transition into umpiring yeah i i knew that I wasn't done with baseball. It was done with me. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make, I was a contact hitter. I wasn't a power hitter. I was an average hitter with uh, good contact. And when I felt I couldn't make contact consistently again, it was time to wrap it up. I had coached before. There was nothing wrong with that, but I was also at, I had given up hockey at the age of 18 and got into refereeing. Had really good experiences with that. So when I left, when I was done playing baseball, it was either coaching or umpiring. And I guess because of the refereeing, I, I chose the umpire. Well, that's really interesting, Ken. Now let's change for a quick second and talk here. You say that you refereed hockey. Do you still referee hockey? I don't anymore. I, once I started traveling with work and things, I, I gave it up. I used to, I, I made it to a level five umpire. Was At the time, I was the youngest level five umpire in Canada. Okay. Probably, uh, I don't remember now, probably about tw age 22, I made level five. Okay. So I got to do a lot of high-level games, enjoyed that immensely. Okay, the reason why I want to talk hockey is I want to ask you from over the years, do you think that refereeing and being a multi-sport official has provided you any benefit to umpiring? Oh, absolutely. The, the, uh, the pressure, the challenge, the, the confidence you need for it, and the impartiality. You, you learn just to be impartial in almost everything you do because you, do so, you spend so much time either refereeing or umpiring that you learn to be impartial which is really important. Oh, yeah, and I think sometimes we learn some stuff in one sport, and then we get to apply it in another sport, so we get to continuously work on some of the numerous skills that we acquire from the sports and from different people and hearing different philosophies of officiating. <laughs> I also think that it doesn't provide a lot of downtime so that you can continuously work on it instead of learning it one year and then coming back the next. Yeah, they're, they're completely different sports, and you oh, need yes. two different skill sets for it, but there are some things you can take from it. But the, most, the thing I enjoy most about umpiring is the challenge to be able to do a, a perfect game. It never happens, but you always strive for it. So you can transfer that to any sport. Well, you say it's never happened. You haven't watched me umpire in a long time then. I've seen you. I've seen you. You're pretty <laughs> perfect. <laughs> well, I appreciate the uh, narcissistic force comment, but I'm far from perfect. <laughs> But I have to ask, why did you get into officiating? I had to stay in baseball. Okay. I, I just didn't feel, for some reason, back then, that's uh, 30 years ago, 
So for, the coaching didn't appeal to me, and I enjoyed the refereeing hockey, so I thought I'd give the umpiring a, a shot. And you've been in it ever since. So let's talk baseball and PEI. What are some of the leagues and opportunities that umpires get to work over there? This is a famous post show edit. I'm sure by now you've heard a lot of maritime slang over there, the island. Just so we put the definitions and make it clear out there. When you hear over there, that means the island. And when you hear the island, that means Prince Edward Island. No, it does not mean Vancouver Island for all you West Coast listeners. The island is Prince Edward Island. Glad we got that out of the way. Now back to the show. Like every province, we have our, our provincial teams, our 18Us all the way down to uh, 13U, and there's 11U baseball as well. But we have uh, we have a very good intermediate league called the Kings County Baseball League, and that there are three counties in PEI. Uh, there's uh, Queens, Prince, and, and Kings County, and the Kings County League has expanded to at least two of the counties. It, it was at one time a provincial league, and before it was known as the Kings County League, it was known as the Island Base, the Island Baseball League. So it was province-wide. It's a, an intermediate league. And uh, there's pretty good baseball in there, a lot of history. That's the, that's the highest level other than the New Brunswick Senior League. Considering there are a few teams, what umpire system do you preferably use during the league play? Up until two, three years ago, it was always two. Now we use three in the playoffs. Nice. So lots of opportunities for umpires to develop in that three umpire system, would you say, in PEI? Yeah, we. I would say, without bragging, we do uh, a better job of than many provinces of getting our, our umpires uh, opportunities in the three umpire system. We have the New Brunswick Senior League and the Junior League, which we, which are both three umpire system. We're trying to get our uh, 15U AAA to uh, agree to do a three umpire system in the regular season. Oh, wow. And uh, any tournaments that we do of uh, 18U and above, we, we do as three umpires whenever we can. Stuff like that. We do a fair amount. That, that does sound like a fair amount because what's the population of Prince Edward Island right now as a whole? 140,000. So I thought, I, thought, I thought we were less than 150,000 and you get these leagues. How many teams would, would you say are in the 15U league? Uh, it depends on the year, but they can get up to eight, eight teams, I'd say. Eight teams. And I mean, I, I've looked at the PEI Baseball Umpire Association roster and you guys are running a roster of probably, what, 150 people total? Uh, the maximum we've ever had is around 115. 115. So I, I'm shooting over. So, I mean, that, that is a lot of opportunity, but it also shows a lot of dedication from your umpires to really commit to working that. Yeah, I'm sure we're not uh, different from most provinces in that we have a real gap between, say, age 16 to whatever number you want to pick, maybe 30. There's a real gap of, of young umpires who have been around for a while and they get to 18, 20 years old, they, they're not there anymore. Right. So we have, a, we have a fair amount of guys to do the, the higher levels, but they're getting older and we have a lot of young umpires, first and second year umpires to do the lower leagues. What we need is people in the middle, same right. as most provinces do. Right. Getting a little harder for some of those guys to rotate from first to home. Is that what you're saying? No, I am saying that. <laughs> not me. <laughs> fair enough then. Fair enough. Okay, let's talk about you specifically, Kent. Do you have any memorable experiences from league or provincial championship play as an umpire? Oh, there's lots, but I don't know if any of them are, are good. Oh, yes, they're always good. <laughs> the one that comes to mind because it's most fresh is two years ago in the finals in the Kings County League. It was game five in the best of seven, and I was doing play. The, the fascinating thing to me about uh, major screw-ups is it requires a perfect storm. 
it's not just one mistake that leads to a, a fatal error by an umpire. It takes three or four different things. So what happened on this play, it's a, a 2-1 game for the home team, and they've got less than two out with a runner on second. The batter, it's a three-umpire system. The batter hits a fly ball to left field. It's a can of corn. As it takes him toward the line, that's the plate umpire's responsibility. That's me. So I go out down the line to make sure there's a catch, and the runner on second is halfway between second and third. It's a can of corn, and the fielder drops it. <laughs> so that's that's part one of the perfect storm. Part two is I'm halfway up the line. Part three is nobody else is, is watching that play. I'm just trying to remember the rest of it. So throw now the, the runner from second is coming home. I have to scramble to get back to the plate. I, I stop again to make sure that he touched third, but he's already got a head of steam up because he came from halfway at second. I stopped to watch him touch third. Now I can't get back to third baseline extended where I'd like to be. The throw comes in. He slides in. I'm behind the catcher, basically first baseline extended. So the catcher makes the tag toward first base with the ball, with his body between me and the ball. The ball is there in plenty of time. The guy slides in. I call him out. Everybody's happy except the home team, the, the runner who slid in. Because, and there's that's part three of the perfect storm. I was first baseline extended. Now part four comes, I realize that something's wrong because you can just tell when you screw up by the player's reaction. So we have a conference with the other two umpires. And first base umpire, it's not his job to watch the play at the plate. He saw nothing. The second base umpire, sorry, the third base umpire, he went out on that ball. So there's, I guess we had a, I'm trying to remember why, I guess we had a miscommunication and he went out on that. So here's another mistake that I made is I didn't ask him if he saw what happened at the plate because he's out in left field. I don't think he can see anything from there. So I didn't ask him. First base umpire saw nothing, so I had to go with my call. They show a series of pictures in the paper the next day, four <laughs> pictures with the ball on the ground. There's always that local reporter yeah. that's right there ready to make sure that you got yeah, it right. great guy, great guy. So it took a combination of events. I screwed up several times on that. It wasn't just one that it took, but it all started. I'm going to blame the left fielder. He should have caught the ball. Right. We can't call a perfect game unless they make a perfect play. Yeah, it's it's his fault. Right. But the, the lesson there is, at least if you're consulting with both partners, then ask both, both partners, because it turns out the third base umpire, even though he was out in left field, did see that the ball was on the ground. He just And he should have offered his opinion, even though I didn't ask it. But he didn't, and I didn't ask him, and I would have gladly taken it even if he was from out in left field that he saw the ball on the ground because it was the right call. And I asked the catcher later. I had a good relationship with the catcher. He came out the next inning, and I come up to, to ask him, did you catch the ball? And, and before I got there, he said, don't even ask. <laughs> That's information on a need-to-know basis. That's the most recent one. There's lots of stories from that league because it was a rough league years ago. Now it's it's turned into more of a baseball league, but it used to be if there wasn't an ejection and a fight, then it wasn't a real game. Years ago, it was rough. Oh, you've just opened the door and made it sound so juicy. You got to share with us then, what are some of the fun that you've had in that league over the years? My first game in that league and my first game umpiring. Now, when I was a teenager, I, I'd fill in an umpire game and not know anything about it, but I, I did have some umpiring experience. But I had baseball experience. So I went to the, the meeting that year and joined up, and my first game was in the intermediate league. And so they didn't put me on a 15U or a 13U game. They put me in the intermediate league on the basis. Center field, the outfield is 
contained by a rope. Buddy at bat hits a hits a ball to deep center. I can't go out because I'm in the infield. There's no there's runners on, and the center fielder dives for it, catches it, and falls over the rope. Okay. This is my very first game in this league, so I know because I've been around, and it actually happened to me once as a as a player that if he catches it and his momentum then takes him over the rope, it keeps the catch. It's a, it's an out. Right. So that's what I called. But all they saw was the ball's over the fence. It's right. a home run. So you get about six different guys yelling at you from both sides. But, you know, that's that's the very first game. Well, thanks very much. I know a lot of people don't come back after that, but I am i wasn't that smart. And you used to there used to be fights in that league all the time, and, and uh, people would say, uh, you know, if you eject me, then I'm going to come get you and stuff like that. But that's, that's, it's, if you're judging that by today's standards, that's 15, 20 years ago. It was different, different time then. It really is. We put, up, yeah. we put up with a lot more back then. Oh, for sure. It really was a different time. And, you know, some nights you, you hear stories of people working all day and just kind of prepping to go to war every night. Like, I don't know what it would be like as an umpire to go and just get ready to fight all night. That didn't, doesn't sound like fun. It, it was tough. Oh yeah. And you hear all these stories of things being personal off the field. You know, small town, not easy to umpire in. And after you've called the last strike, you're like, I've given you everything I got. I didn't intentionally try to screw you. Yeah, if I if I saw a person in the in the grocery store the next day that yelled at me the day before, I don't care anymore. It's gone. No, and it, that stuff's hard to deal with when you live in a small town and, you know, small province. It, it, it really is. It gets to a person. That's a big play for your first game, and there's multiple rules and situations that have to be awarded. In that situation, how would you apply that today knowing what you know now? It's an out if he catches it in in uh, fair territory and his momentum takes him over the over the fence and he maintains possession of the ball, it's an out. And always was, always will be. And then we award bases as needed. Oh yeah. But that's another day because we don't like to talk about the rules here. <laughs> that was the uh, the last thing on my mind at the time where I'm gonna award bases yeah. on that because there I had six guys telling me what they knew. Oh, I can definitely see that on a Tuesday night being difficult to get through that rule interpretation, but that's what's important about going to a national championship too, is that if you're handed those situations, you got to nail them. Now you bring up crew consultations and I think I want to take a minute here and talk about it. And one of my pet peeves or beef with people who gather for crew consultations is when I'm asked what I saw that my partner starts arguing with me after they need help. Don't come in and ask me what I saw, then question me when potentially it's going to overrule your decision. It's plain and simple. You ask me, I'm telling you, let's go. That I can see that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had that. No, I've had I, that over the years. That. Yeah. I did have a crew consultation one time where I went in to talk to the plate umpire. I was third base umpire, and I wanted to check with him to make sure that he saw a tag. There was a, a rundown kind of thing. There was two men on the base, and I wanted to make sure that they tagged them in the right order that I thought I saw. Right. And uh, he started to tell me the whole rule about who's out when there's two men on base and stuff. You know, I don't need that stuff right now. No. I'm at a level where I understand those things. Yeah. yeah. If I wanted to know the rule, I would have asked you that. And that 100% is what I think they call the definition of big leaguing. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Kent, let's move on to some of your national championship experiences. If memory serves me correctly, you've been part of, what, 20 Baseball Canada national championships over the years? The, the problem nowadays is you can't just go online and look those all up because they started in 95. Right. They're not all anywhere I can find them. So I had to go by memory, and I, I wrote them all down today. I had most of them written down already because I knew I'd forget. There's uh, <laughs> 15 nationals and uh, five supervisions. 
when I say 15 nationals, that includes an, inter, an, an international and a Canada Games. Fair enough. I definitely include the Canada Games as part of a national championship. No question. So where was your first national championship? My first national of all places was in Summerside, PEI. Yeah. 1995 was the, uh, it was called the Cavendish Farms Peewee National Championship. It would be a 13U now. Now we had a previous guest on and I think it was Dave Cass and we kind of got into it quickly. Did Summerside host that championship for like 10 or 12 years in a row? least yeah it was great for us because we could always send our our young um, up and coming level fours there right at a cheap cost to us one of the nice things too you could say right across the country and they've kind of split that 13u up now but it was almost like every umpire had to come through prince edward island at one time to get to the next level per se yeah it, a lot of people started out at the peewees and they loved coming to pei because they they take their golf clubs and spend an extra week here or whatever and yep Everybody look forward to it. Yes. If there's one thing that's really enjoyable going to a national championship is really getting the opportunity to explore some of the local scenery and culture. But PEI, I think, is a different thing on its own. You have to spend a few days and a week because there's so much to do on such a small island, but the pleasure is all there. At that time of year, it's a it's a beautiful place. Sure. Okay, so you rock. Summerside in 95. Right. Do you have any memories from that championship? Yeah, my... my most distinct memory from that is before the tournament started, we were at the, they had a, a Canadian Forces base, Summerside there, an Air Force base, and it was disbanded. So we were using that as our facility, which meant very small barracks for us and two, two to a room. So the experienced umpires who were there who had been to nationals before said, uh, we're not putting up with this. We're going to the supervisor and we're telling him to get us better, get us a hotel, or we're not umpiring. Okay. And this is my first championship. I've never experienced anything like this. I don't know if that's normal or, or what. I don't know what the normal uh, accommodations are. Yep. I just know I have to go along with these guys. So they go up to Stan Porter, who is the supervisor, Stan's from, from PEI. I'm trying to get Stan into the Hall of Fame right now. I consider him the, the PEI Hall of Fame. I consider him the father of umpiring on PEI. He's a great guy, a great umpire. Taught, yes. me, taught me a lot. Uh, he was our supervisor, and he had a, a way with dealing with people. And they went up to him. We went up to him as a group and said, we want a hotel. We're not putting up this facility. And he says, you guys let me know when you've got your mind made up for sure on that because I need to make some phone calls so I can get more umpires here by tomorrow. Oh, wow. That was it. Uh. That's all he said. He didn't argue with us. He just said, that's great. He said, great. That's, I understand your problem. Uh, just make sure on that. Cause I got to make some phone calls to get some umpires here by tomorrow. I could not imagine as an umpire going to my supervisor and saying the accommodations are not good enough. They were, they were pretty bad there. You take a, a normal bedroom of a house and put, and it was put two cots in there and there's no bathroom. You had to be down the hall and the players who were 13, age 12 and 13, shared the facilities as well so we'd have to share the showers and the bathrooms with them so it, it wasn't great that wasn't why we were there no it wasn't great but in all honesty these communities try their hardest to put these events on they're not intentionally trying to put out a bad show like they really want to make sure that they're making their community stand out and making sure that people want to come back and visit and want to tell people hey go visit this community i had a really good time there yeah, I, I had no idea if this was normal, if they uh, demand things from the supervisor every tournament or what. This is my first one. <laughs> Any recommendation to rookie umpires out there going to your first championship? That's 
probably not the way to handle it. No, do what you're told yeah. and keep your head down. You're, you're there to umpire and appreciate it. And there's a feedback form at the end. Save it for then. Yeah, exactly. Now, where do you get to go after that first championship? After 95, where I learned so much at the Pee Wee in Summerside, the very next year I got to go to the Pee Wee in Summerside. Yeah, just couldn't, I really moved up. Sometimes you just can't get enough of Summerside, I guess. Well, I, I learned so much at the first one because you're you're just in awe, and we never had any uh, three umpire experience okay. then. So I had a lot to learn. So the first year was great. I didn't hurt anybody, didn't hurt myself. <laughs> so I got to go back and be more of a veteran the second year, and uh, I ended up doing uh, bronze plate, which wasn't bad. So nice, pretty pleased with that tournament. So do you eventually move out of the thirteen U ranks? Yeah, I went. Uh, <laughs> In 98, be two years later, I went to the Selects in Stonewall, Manitoba. Okay, that's a big jump. It was, and I'm not sure if I was ready for it at the time. But, I, and again, there's there's always stories from that. I got a letter from Baseball Canada saying, you know, welcome to the Select Championships. Baseball Canada will take care of the flights, etc. So I go, great, and I sat, and I waited, and I waited, and I got no flight information, and you're you're expecting me to be on the internet here, but this is '98. Right. There's no real internet, and uh, if it is, it's uh, it's dial-up. So I'm waiting, and two days before the tournament, I phone up uh, I phone up Baseball Canada, and they say, "No, you're supposed to book your own tickets." <laughs> but it said in the letter, I don't care what it said in the letter. You book your own tickets. So I phoned Air Canada and couldn't get a ticket. So I'm thinking, great, my first trip away. And I'm not going to be there because I couldn't get a trip for two days. It would have been Friday afternoon before I got there. I phoned Baseball Canada back and they got me, somehow they got me a plane ticket and I was there on time. I don't know how they did it because I couldn't get it through Baseball Canada, through Air Canada. Wow. Yeah. Andre, Andre Lachance, of course, was the, the guy. The guy is a magician. I've heard that before from other people. You can just pull stuff off, but there was no uh, Spud Airlines willing to fly out directly or what? You'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. But no. There's a bridge to the mainland, but there's no flights to Manitoba. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. So when we reflect back on our learning opportunity for this, is that all these national championships, there's so much that goes into making sure that they're executed and everything is well done. Because a lot of people have mentioned in the past is that sometimes going to that first championship is nerve-wracking. You don't know what you're going to experience. And good thing it wasn't your first. Okay, considering all the rush to get there, how did the championship go in the end? Pretty much, I would, without much notice, I was there, and uh, I had a, a great uh, crew chief, Brian Keith. Okay. You know Brian? No, I don't. It's a, it's a uh, name I've never actually never heard, so this, this will be interesting. I learned a lot from Brian. He has a picture sitting right on his mantle, right in the bookshelf. The man with two first names. Yes. <laughs> great crew chief, great guy. learned a lot from him. Uh, the supervisor at that tournament, he was critical. Okay. He, he was hard on people and uh, wasn't what I was used to. And we thought it was just our crew until we finally got to compare notes on Saturday with the other crews. You don't get to hang around much, or we didn't, until maybe Friday night, maybe Saturday. And we found out that this uh, supervisor was hard on everybody. We thought it was just us that, that we were really bad. But it just turns out that was the supervisor's way. What, what I did learn is he came in after our first game. Brian Keith did the plate. And he yelled at Brian about something he didn't like. I don't remember anything else that he said after that. Right. So if I, if he said good things about me, bad things, I have no idea. Because once you come in with a, a big negative yelling in somebody's face, you don't remember anything else after that. 
Now let's talk about how the program used to be though, because I've never experienced it, but I've been told at one time the evaluation platform was you started perfect and then you lost points from there. Yeah, and, that's right. And the mentality was you had to just show up and be able to do it. It wasn't so much as one, a learning opportunity or two, meet a competency or a standard and be able to work within that standard and then kind of excel from there. They, they, ex they had high expectations. Right with, the uh, they didn't expect they'd have to teach you better ways. They would just sit back and mark you on what you did right. or didn't. That's yeah, and that's a better way to put it. It wasn't. A, it was about marking what you were doing, not about learning and making sure you don't do it again. Yeah, there was. There's no thought about this guy's going to be around for a few years. Let's teach him a few things. Right, and I think this is what's changed within the Baseball Canada program, and it's for the benefit. Now, let's go back and look at when you work in your local community, you work in your local clique, you get feedback from the same people on over and over and over again. But the benefit of going to the national championship is you get to hear feedback from different people and learn things as we go. But don't get me wrong. You are expected to show up. You are expected to know the rules. The idea is that you should be expanding on your knowledge, not learning for the first time when you're there. I was really fortunate in uh, most of my national tournaments in that I was the provincial supervisor most of my years. So I basically got to pick where I wanted to go. Okay. Which meant I would look for a supervisor that I could learn from. So, uh, for example, I'd always try and go where Ed Quinlan was. Okay. You learn a million things from Ed and people like that. Right. So it, I learned a lot and I was always the type to ask a lot of questions and write everything down as well. So if I found a, a good supervisor, I'd try and go there, never mind what tournament it was, and learn as much as I could so I could take it back right. to PEI to teach everybody else. What a fantastic way to look at it because when you go to national championships, you're going to umpire, but you're also being sent there to expand that knowledge with the idea that you're going to bring it back to your home province and home community to expand umpiring there and work to pass it off so that other people can get the same opportunities you have. There, there was always a lot of hassle, a lot of pressure on a lot of umpires there who, if they didn't get gold medal plate, it was a disappointment for them. Right. That was never, ever my goal there. My goal was to fill as many pages as I could with as much information as I could to take back. I would say to the supervisors, give me more, give me more. What else you got? Yeah. And that's all I went for. So I'm going to ask you a math question then, because you've been uh, a supervisor as well. Of all the years you've been to championships, at the end of a tournament, how many gold medal plates are awarded? I'm going to say one. Is that a constant? Yes. Right. So the, the moral is there's only one that's available, people. It, it's, a, it's about learning. It's about putting out the, your best effort and letting the cards fall where they fall. Okay, let's get it a stone wall. Thinking back on it, what would be one of the highlight championships on your resume? I liked Kentville. Is that senior in 2001? Uh, yes. That's it. I'm just going to shout out. I think New Brunswick, St. John Alpines at the time, I believe, take the gold medal game. So that, that does ring a bell. That's why I kind of know that championship. But why was Kentville so exciting? Uh, again, good crew. Who was on your crew? I'm not going to say because there's a story there. Okay. But uh, a good crew, the two guys from out west, when we had our, our pre-tournament meeting, the three of us, they spent a lot of time arguing over really fine points. And again, I'm still wet behind the ears a little bit, and these guys are arguing about uh, how many steps to take and how 
how far the ball up to ha, ha, the ball has to go up the line before the base umpire makes the fair foul call. Like I'm talking an hour. Oh yeah. On these. That's what us Westerners do. We're, we like to argue. Not the crew chief, but the other guy. He was doing plate. He threw a ball to the pitcher, and the pitcher threw it back because it wasn't rubbed up properly. Well, that pitcher was so no, sorry. The the plate umpire was so upset by that at his quality of umpiring baseballs, uh, rubbing rubbing up baseballs. He rubbed up every baseball for every game after that and spent a good five minutes with each baseball. So we didn't have to rub up anymore because he took care of it. I, I'm not a fan of rubbing up baseball, so if there's any umpires in my crew that wants to look after it, have at it. Yeah, well, it, it's attention to detail. It's caring and, and quality. He took it to a, a, a level that I wasn't prepared to, but part of me admired him for it. Fair enough. Now, that's a senior championship. So you've gone from 13U to senior championship in a matter of four seasons kind of thing, or four championships in a way. That's a that's big scary, isn't it? That's a big jump. That's a big jump quick. And that's yeah. how that that's how the program kind of used to be was they just sent you to where your provincial supervisor thought you should be. Well, I I was the guy who sent me there, so I must have had a pretty big ego at the time. I must have thought I could do it. Might I, have. I got good I got good feedback in Stonewall. I ended up doing uh third base in the gold medal game. Nice. And uh I when I got home, I ended up assistant supervisor at the Peewees with Bucky. Nice. And that's a 98. And then I supervised, I was lead supervisor in 99 there. So I guess I figured I knew what I was doing. So I assigned myself <laughs> the seniors in Kentville in, in 2001. Right. Now, the other thing too, if you look back on it, 2001 and 2021 is where it's a different time in the umpire and baseball Canada circuit. At one time you, you might've only got slots that were so close to your province. It was a financial thing. It wasn't like you said, there was no internet to really pop on and get flights so you might have had a senior championship in the Maritimes and it wouldn't be uncommon to see maybe 80% heavy Maritime umpires and a guy from out West. But now I think right across the country, every province tries to send somebody to each level every year. There's a, there's an honest effort put out to make sure it's a little bit even. There is. And when the seniors are in the Maritimes too, we don't have a lot of senior eligible umpires. So not like it used to be with you'd have five or six from New Brunswick and four or five from Nova Scotia and a couple from PEI, but the, the pickings are slim now. It's that intergenerational gap that you've already referenced and we, we hear that so, too. Yeah. I think there are a few provinces that are concerned about not having enough major eligible umpires and I think it alludes to back to that intergenerational gap where we talked that we're missing a lot of umpires between the ages of let's say 35 and 45. And let's be honest, the senior championship is a different beast. We've talked about it before in the show, but it is a high-profile championship. Yeah, those those players uh, still all almost all of them still believe they should be in the major leagues. It's a different. It's a it's quite a level up from most of the other uh, national tournaments. Okay, since we're talking senior championships in 2011, Miramichi New Brunswick, take us down memory road. Oh, 2011, the Miramichi. The, the thing that pops up right now is I was, uh, we had a couple of rain days in yes. that, and I was the big poker winner. Playing um, poker with umpires, you must have made a good chunk of change and helps you early retire. No, I think those are gone <laughs> by now for sure. Okay, if you were the big winner, who was the big loser? Jody Frowley, and it was his uh, poker set, and Jody went all in real early in one game, and uh, he was done. Lisa Turbin gave me uh, a run for my money. She won one of the uh, one of the rounds, and... So if somebody's looking to make a quick buck, you're trying to say invite Jody Frally and and you can make a few yeah. dollars pretty easy. Absolutely, yeah. 
But the the other part of that was uh, the most memorable part was I don't remember who was in the gold medal game, but it had rained, so that messed up the schedule. So Sunday they were playing. They had to play the semifinals, I believe, in the in the morning, and then the finals in the afternoon. And Bo and Miramichi is huge for baseball. Right. They've got great facilities there and great fans, and it's just a, an awesome place to be for baseball. And like I said, I don't remember who was in the gold medal game, but both New Brunswick teams were in the bronze medal game. So that was for everybody there was the gold medal game. The place was packed. It was nuts. Right. And we've referenced that weekend here a couple times because I think that it was at Ontario versus British Columbia in the gold medal game. And they ended up playing that at five o'clock and they played uh, New Brunswick at the time was Fredericton played the hometown Chatham Ironman in the game at 8 o'clock, so they made the bronze medal game the feature game. Yeah, not too often you see that. Ken, looking back at that championship, how many fans attended that event? Oh, it was always packed. It's a great place. It is. Great place for ball. Ron Suchuk alludes to it. I think Ron worked the bronze medal game at first or second, and I think he referenced that Lisa Turbot had the, the bronze medal plate. And we've had David Cass on the show, and David, I think, alludes to Dave Lavarado getting the gold medal plate. Game management skills were awesome that game. It was something to behold. And there's a good lesson from that tournament, too, as I remember it now. My first game, and uh, Suchuk was my crew chief. Okay. I was doing first base in the first game, and to say I was horrible would be being kind to the word horrible. <laughs> I was lost that first game, and uh, Cass was my supervisor. Thank goodness he's very kind. And he told me that I was horrible. He didn't tell me I was horrible. He said, why were you terrible? And I knew it. And I felt like going home. And I, I seriously considered going home. I felt I didn't belong. I shouldn't be there. I'm hurting the rest of the crews. I didn't know what I was doing. And I seriously considered going home. I had such a bad game. Okay. Didn't make any bad calls. It's just freezing and, and making, forgetting rotations and stuff like that. But I didn't hurt the teams, I don't think. It just hurt my own crew. But the moral of the story is I had a good talk with myself and decided what I need to do is not quit, but work harder. And I improved every game after that and got complimented for it because I didn't give up. I'm not trying to brag here. I'm trying to show no. people don't give up. Don't be, you know, be hard on yourself, but learn from it, work hard and uh, you can come through the other side. Okay. Right. Cause we can kick a call, but when we're letting our crewmates down, that's the hardest part of the umpires. We're really hard on ourselves and, there's nothing more demoralizing than really making your crew step up for you. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty depressing. But let's not talk about depressing stuff too much because you have a championship later in your career that a lot of people don't have, and that's that you've attended the Canada Games. Talk to us about the Canada Games. Canada Games would have been in 13. Okay. In Sherbrooke. So obviously you've rebounded from your championship in 2011. What's it like to work at Canada Games? Well, the difference between a Canada game, one of the differences between the Canada games and a national tournament is the Canada games is all a week. Right. A national tournaments, uh, four days. So you're there for the entire week and you only do, as I remember, maybe one game a day. On occasion, I think we did two, but most national tournaments you're doing a couple a day. But we were there, our games were spread out. We weren't overtaxed and we got to go see uh, other sports. And we weren't working, so it was it was really awesome. Quite an experience. What other sports did you take in? Volleyball, quite a bit of volleyball. Couldn't go to the... I, I watched some of the swimming, the relay swimming, 
couldn't go to the sailing because some of the other guys had been the some of the sailing officials were in the same room uh, same lodging as we were and some of the baseball umpires gave them a pretty hard time so <laughs> i couldn't go watch them who were some of your crewmates at that championship keith mcconkey was there okay bucky was there <laughs> the first or the second time <laughs> that was his second <laughs> we've heard about that in a previous episode did you hear that he didn't finish either one of them? <laughs> well, that's that's the rumor. That's the truth. So he, he got hit on the head with his first one. He wore a normal plate mask, and he got hit on the top of the head and got a concussion and couldn't finish. So for his next term, he got special permission to go to a second national uh, Canada game. He's only supposed to go to one. So he wore a bucket, the hockey mask, yep. for the second yep. one. Figured he's safe from concussions now. Ball went in the dirt, came up, and caught him under the chin and gave him another concussion. He was done again. It, it's funny now, but the, the poor guy. And Rob Allen came on the show previously and shared with us a story where Bucky goes down, and then a little while later that night, all of a sudden, he's standing outside the umpire room or the umpire meeting with uh, an adult beverage in his hand, smiling. Everyone mm -hmm. thought Bucky was gone, a goner. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's quite the family that the umpiring community has here in Canada. Everyone works really hard, and you get to see some of these find people over the years and have to share these stories a little while later. Like you said, it wasn't funny at the time, but I think the more we hear about it, it we can at least giggle at it. Well, the, the thing that sets Bucky apart is I've been to a lot of national tournaments, either the supervisor or an umpire, and there are a lot of really good umpires and a lot of really great characters. I mean that in the best way possible. And Bucky is pretty much head and shoulders above the rest of them <laughs> as, as a character, for as sure. Uh, yeah, he was probably, a lot of fun. Probably Dave Cass would run second, but Bucky's got to be the tops by far. With Dave Cass, is that before or after his signature pool dive? I love the dive in the pool. Were you there for that? Yeah, I was. Okay, it's only fair. You need to share your perspective on that story. He was just, he was saying he wanted to dive in the pool. So we, and it was November and the pool was not open, but it was still filled. Thank goodness. Yes. Because he was going in. We're talking about, we're standing around the pool again, having an adult beverage, and all of a sudden comes this train with momentum and, and jumps right in with a big cannonball, huge cannonball splash. And then he, as he crawls out, here comes the night manager saying, you're not allowed to do that. And as we all realize, there's no sense in running. Cass is, is uh, soaking wet. So uh, he, he couldn't deny it that he did anything or that if we ran away, where's he going to go in November when he's soaking wet? So we took the heat from the, the night manager, and the best part to me of all, Cass's room key was at the bottom of the pool. So he had to go soaking wet to the front desk and ask for another key, and they'd say, where's your key? And he would say, it's at the bottom of the pool. Yeah. You didn't have to escort him down there, did you, being from the Maritime, look after those guys? I think I didn't know him for the rest of the night. He's also one of the best supervisors I've ever had, Dave Cass, and definitely the most prepared. That is one thing we got to give a compliment to Dave Cass is Dave comes prepared. You know ahead of time what the expectations are. Your email starts getting flooded in May. It's not a bad thing. It's real as a as a novice umpire when I went to one of my first championships and having Dave as a supervisor, it was very much appreciated. Yeah, and I've supervised with Dave too and uh, he's not a, a taskmaster. He's not he's prepared to do things himself or he wouldn't ask you to do them because he's done them. And he's very organized. The, one of the best things I ever saw that he did was when, when he was a supervisor and I was doing a game, uh, we had some ejections. And the 
first base umpire who had one of the ejections was French from Quebec. And he was trying to write out the report because it wasn't online then. And Dave went to him and said, we can get you that in, in French. So you can fill it out in French if you want, if you're not comfortable in English. I never would have thought of that. Maybe it's a small, simple thing, but right. Dave has such empathy for everybody and puts himself in, it, in other people's shoes that I thought it was a genius move. It made the umpire more comfortable and made his report more accurate. Right, and that's one of the cool things about being Canadian is that, yes, we do have two official languages in the country. And another cool thing about going to the Baseball Canada National Championships is that you're going to see both languages at the championships. But at the end of the day, we all speak one language, and that is baseball. Yeah, and the, the player in question was threatening to sue us for discrimination, so his father was a lawyer. We had to get the report right. Well, to avoid any litigation here, um, I'd like to move on to the next topic. Okay, Kent, let's move away from some of your national championship experience and let's talk about an experience that you had in 2002 where you got the opportunity to work the World Junior Baseball Championships in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Right, it was in Sherbrooke. This is the first time I've been to Sherbrooke and then later on the Canada Games. Sherbrooke is a great facility. There's no wonder why they got to host the World Juniors. The stadium is, is top-notch. I believe they have a Can-Am team there. I think the Can-Am League amalgamated with the American Association of some sort, but now it's known going forward as the Frontier League. And it was just a completely different experience than anything else I'll ever experience because the umpires were from all over the world. We used four-umpire system at the the World Championships because it's harder to communicate with everybody speaking different languages and everybody has different systems. Right. They all vary slightly. So to counter that, they use four umpire system, less chance of mistakes. Okay. So that, again, is something completely different that you're not used to, and we don't get to practice that very much. Uh, fortunately, we had a Canadian supervisor, Howard Chapman, supervisor. Again, great guy who knows, uh, knew a million things. Howard's passed on now. Learned a lot from Howard. Had some some great experiences there. I worked with a, a Venezuelan professional league umpire. I worked with a, a few really good Canadians. I worked with a guy from Germany whose plate gear never did show up. Worked with a guy from Chinese Taipei who carried his thick wallet out onto the field. Told our supervisor he couldn't do games when the Chinese Taipei team was playing because he had to go cheer for them. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you're dealing with at a... At a World, an international championship. Right. Kind of a George Costanza bring his wallet out there. The first the first plate I had, he was doing third base. It was on a Saturday. So this is the kind of thing that, that can go wrong at these things. They used school buses to take the teams there and transport the teams, but it was Saturday. So they didn't have the regular driver. They had a fill-in a volunteer who knew how to drive a bus, but he had no idea where the stadium was. So they showed up an hour and a half late. And then they say, it wasn't our fault we're late. We want a full infield and stuff. So we're pushed back two hours, two and a half hours. Then we get playing and it starts to rain. This Chinese type, of course, but we're playing in it. Chinese Taipei umpire is doing third. He's on one play. He's inside the diamond. There's a hit to right field. The runner from first goes whatever. I don't remember the combination, but it was his call at third base and he was inside the diamond. So the throw is coming from right field to third base. It's going to be close. And this guy completely turns his back on the right fielder to watch the play at third. And you just hear this whack. And I'm waiting for him to go down, but he just turns around and like it didn't hurt him at all. 
about an inning later, the rains, the skies opened up. We had to delay the game. So we're all in the clubhouse and I'm asking him, you must be sore. How are you feeling? And that's where I learned he had this big fat wallet because he hauled it out of his back pocket and he showed me this four inch thick wallet. And he said, no, hit me on the wallet. <laughs> that's why you wear it, right? That's why you yeah, bring it up. <laughs> Protective gear for base umpires. Yeah. Because I think it's pretty safe to assume when you're working a four umpire system, the chance of you going in the inside is very, very slim. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why he was there now. I don't remember the, but you're right, four umpire system, third base umpire should be taking that from probably foul territory. But he right. was inside, <laughs> throw from right field, and right in the ass. Who were some of the other Canadian umpires that were there? Uh, Fran McHugh was there. Out of New Brunswick. From New Brunswick. Stefan Dupont was there. I hung around a lot with Stefan, learned a lot from Stefan that week. Yes. Uh, Brian... From Manitoba, Brian uh, Hodgson's. Hodgson's. Hodgson. And a great guy, great umpire. He did gold medal plate. That's quite the crew you have. You have Howard Chapman as your supervisor, but then you get yeah. Fran McHugh, who was actually the first Canadian umpire to go to an Olympic event. And then right. you're going to add Brian Hodgson's, who eventually goes to the Olympics a couple years later in 2008. That's right. Like that's pretty talented pool right there. And Stefan is no slouch either. No, he's no slouch. Like you say, he has a lot of international experience in the 99 Pan Am Games. He's worked a World Baseball Cup, and he also worked the 2009 World Baseball Classic. I believe so, yeah. But that is quite the umpire crew that you have there at the 2002 World Junior Championships. And throw in a mix of George Costanza, well, it's pretty well-rounded crew. <laughs> there was a, a, a certain, certainly a gap in the quality from some umpires to the next. There was a, a Mexican umpire. There was a... Where was that guy from France? Real ladies, man. They, they were pretty much stereotypical. A lot of them. The, the French guys was... Was that Franck like, from like, France? Yes, from France. Yeah, because Dave Cass alludes to Franck from France, I think, was what his experience with the guy at one time from France. Yeah, could be. Now, that championship had some decent baseball players, too. They're like Sin Su Chu and then Joe Maurer, J.J. Hardy, and then the Canadians, Russell Martin and Adam Lowen. Like, yeah, I had no idea that they were there. The, you really uh, wouldn't when they're 19 years old. You, you know that they're eventually going to be something, but... Yeah, well, especially the Canadian guys. We never got to see them. Right. We never got to umpire the Canadian games. The, the guy I remember was the center fielder for uh, uh, Lastings Millage, the center fielder for USA. He played for three or four years, mostly in Pittsburgh. Chad Billingsley was there for the U.S. And Jared Saltolamacchia, Jays fans might remember him. And uh, Delman Young, I think he just retired last year. So they did. I was quite surprised. I knew, I looked up Lasting's Millage because he made an impression on me with a couple of catches he made. But I looked up the other guys only and to find out there's a good half dozen uh, major leaders there. Yeah, USA typically sends a very talented pool. Now, the World Juniors is not so much a thing anymore, but... They call it the WBSC 18U Championships. The reality is these are kids that are eventually going to get drafted and will be somewhere. They just haven't really established themselves yet. But that doesn't take away from the talent that they have. I remember Adam Lowen there because he had just been drafted by Baltimore, but he hadn't signed yet with them. Okay, so he could go. So he wasn't allowed to pitch. He played right field for the Canadian team because he could still hit too. But what an arm from right field. I, I've never seen anything like it. And you took in some Canadian games off the side when you could? Oh, yeah. I remember the, the Canada-U.S. game where the Canada was coming back down one or two runs, and they had a play 
just in front of home plate, the catcher went to get the ball and, and uh, threw it and hit the base runner, and the ball went wild. Two or three runs scored, and the packed stadium went nuts. And the plate umpire had to bring it back, of course, because the the runner was way outside his the runner's lane. Wasn't oh, yeah. even a hard call, but the plate the fans don't understand that. So the place almost rioted then. <laughs> It's, it's Canada-U.S. game, and it meant something, too. It was right. The winner went on to the medal round, I think, something like that. Yeah, I think Canada finishes fourth at that championship. And yeah. Had take, seizing those opportunities as an umpire. Don't go looking for those calls, but when they're there, make sure you make them. That's why we're there. I, being an umpire, I watched the umpire in the play, oh. and he sold it the whole time. Nobody's paying any attention to him, but he was selling it the whole time. So there's nothing else he could have done on that. He did a great job. Okay, Kent, let's move on, but kind of circle back to the PEI Umpire Association. What have been some of your roles within the association over the years? Pretty much my only role as, uh, as supervisor. Okay. That's, that's changed over the years. I, I was supervisor, not consecutive years, but for 20 years. And when I first took over, there was a president who ran the association and the supervisor ran the quality of the umpires, the training of the umpires. That later morphed into the supervisor took control as well of the entire association. There were, there were things like, uh, I've, that's all I've done, be provincial supervisor, and uh, that involved a lot of different hats, like uh, writing the constitution, writing a, a procedures manual, things like that. Okay, Ken, I have to ask, in some provinces, umpires are part of the provincial sporting organization, or the PSO, and in others umpires are completely on their own how does it work when you're in prince edward island officially we're on our own but we have a, a very good working relationship with baseball pei okay that also had to be repaired when i took over it was in a bad way we don't have any uh, big disagreements we use we work to get along and we work to understand each other and, and do what's best for baseball over the next couple of years where do you see the program going next 20 years i expect will be umpiring with robots there yeah because but, i'm uh, sure summerside went from the 13 new championship to robots i can see that happening <laughs> i don't know what'll happen in 20 years i do know and, and we've been working very diligently on a mentor program that uh, with the help of baseball pei i might mention uh, and when i say with the help i mean mostly with the help financially from baseball pei which is a, a huge help our mentor program, it's always been a problem with any umpire association to retain its members. And the main thing you need to do, I think, to become a good umpire is to stick it out, stick around year after year. So the main thing we're trying to do with our mentor program with the younger part, there's two parts of it. And the younger part is just to keep the guys there. We'll let them know that we're there for them and try and go to as many games as we can, give them feedback, positive feedback to keep them coming back. I don't think enough attention is paid to the younger umpires because the problem is no matter what you do, statistics show you're going to lose half those first and second year umpires anyway. Right. So you're putting in a lot of time to people who aren't going to be around in the program. Yeah. So we'll find out in the next few years if, if the mentor program does anything to combat that. Since we're talking about mentors and mentorship, I hear you're working on a side project and writing a book. What's the title of said book? The book is called Umpire Mentors. So big surprise there, but it's uh, the subtitle is the best umpiring advice from the best umpires in the world. When you say I'm writing a book, it's not really written by me. Okay. I've got a hundred 
umpires giving me answers to questions I've asked them and very many of those, probably 60% are top in their class. They're world-class umpires. Uh, a couple major leaguers, a lot of minor leaguers who may have had some time doing uh, spring training or call-up umpires. A lot of college umpires have got three U.S. College Hall of Fame umpires. So there's a, a lot of, it's, it's not from me, it's, a, it's from these best umpires in the world who give me answers. I asked everybody the same nine questions plus an extra inning question. And you'd think you might get the same answer to a lot of them, but you don't, which is the great part of it. You get a lot of different feedback from expert, experienced, genius umpires. So when you ask these questions and get these answers, what are you doing? Summarizing some of the answers? Or are you collaborating and putting it together? Or? Everybody has their own whatever it takes, two, three pages to answer the questions. Because it's a book, I'm not limited by space unless I want to stop spending money on the publishing part of it because the more you print, the more it costs, of course. The more pages you print, the more it costs. But I'm letting everybody expand on their answers as much as they want, as much detail as they want, because when you're doing a book, you have to remember who the audience is. And I expect the audience will mostly be young learning umpires. So when you say the best way to be consistent with your strike zone is to be in the slot, well, what's the slot? Right. So we've got to explain that. And we've got to explain what timing is. Not every time that it's mentioned, but if I, I put in a section on definitions. Right, a so, a yeah, a section on definitions and what to expect. How did you start asking people these questions? Did you have contacts or what was the method you used? I had a lot of contacts. I also had a lot of, uh, I don't like to say the word ignorance, but I had a lot of uh, not knowing what the hell I was doing, which usually helps believe it or not. I don't think J.D. Salinger really did in the Times either, so. Yeah, let's compare me to J.D. Salinger. That's a, that'd be a good idea. So, yeah, so J.D. Salinger and I were sitting there coming, <laughs> trying to come up with an idea, and uh, I, I come up with, the first thing you have to do is come up with the questions. I, I learned a lot from uh, my wife's cousin did a book, and he asked uh, about 400 different people what's the best way to save the planet? It was a, an Earth-focused book, and he got, uh, he got comments from you know gurus and uh, world leaders and all different kinds of people, and it took him a long time to, to do that. But he asked just basically one question. So I remembered that, and I put it away, and then uh, you know, I thought that's a really good idea. Everything I do, it used to be everything I do, I wonder how I could work it into baseball, what I could learn from it and use it in baseball. Once I started umpiring, the same thing transferred there. If I, if I see something, a quote from somebody that's got nothing to do with baseball, I think that applies to umpiring. We're athletes too, that, that applies to us. So when I saw the book, I thought, well, that's a great idea for umpiring. I wonder if I can do something with that. So I put it on the back burner and saw a shiny object and it's gone. A couple of years later, I came across a book called Tribe of Mentors from Timothy Ferris. Ferris is, a, is a, one of the world's most popular podcasts and he's written a few books, the, the four day work week, yes. I think and a couple others like that. And he asked people, he asked world again, world business people about 12 questions. Uh, what's the, if you could put advice on a billboard, what would it say? What's the best thing you ever bought for under hundred dollars and things like that. So, but he asked everybody the same questions and finally it hit me that, 
I have a publishing and writing background. I used to write an umpiring, uh, I used to write and edit and publish uh, umpire magazine years ago. And uh, so when I think of how can I turn this into umpiring, it usually turns into some form of, of writing form. But I realized that nothing I would write would be interesting to people because who am I? I've got no experience. I never even went to a, a pro camp. It hit me that I could ask world quality umpires all these questions and let them answer them instead of me answering them. So it's really coming from experts. Then the key was what questions do you ask them? And Phil, I got to ask you if you, if you could talk to a dozen world-class umpires and you wanted to learn how to be a better umpire, what would you ask them? Well, that's difficult, Ken, because I'm usually the one asking the questions here. Yeah. So I don't mean to throw you under the bus, but that's the dilemma. That is quite the dilemma. But if I wanted to get better at umpiring, I want to know how much Jim Wolf can curl. There you go. I think that's really important and helps people get to the next level. And that's going to help you in your umpiring career. How? I'm a believer that optics are 99% of the game. But in all fairness, Kent, you are right. That's a very hard question. I couldn't just narrow it down based on one question. There's so many things that go into umpiring to be the best umpire in the world. And I can't think right off the palm of my hand. Yeah, so the, the point is, I don't I don't want to put you on the spot. You can think no. about that if you want. The, the point is, I've only got one shot with these guys. If I'm going to ask them questions and they're going to answer them, I can't go back to them and say, never mind that one. What about this question? So I've got to get the questions right. So I spent a lot of time asking other people I knew. I've been around for a few years. I know some people. And we, we talked about some of the questions. We come up with maybe 15 or so. And I realized I wanted it to be nine questions. Any more than that, it's just too many. And plus, we can tie it into the innings of baseball. First inning question is this. Second inning is this. So we pared it down to nine, but I wasn't satisfied. That left out one question that I needed. So how do we work in the 10th question? We make it an extra inning question. There we go. We've got 10 questions. Then you got to word them correctly, and you've got to put them in the right order. Yes. Because I start out with, uh, hey, Mr. Umpire, I'm Kent Walker, and I'm writing a book. Maybe you can give me your feedback. What's your uh, definition of game management? The guy's going away because it's, it's too hard if I ask him that right off the start. If I ask him that in the sixth or seventh question, he might stick around and answer it because he's had some easier ones. So we start off with, what's the most fun thing about umpiring? Everybody's going to want to answer that easy question, gets you in. So now they're in, so we can get them in the second and third. The second question is, what's the worst thing about umpiring? So that's, again, that's easy. Everybody's got an opinion on that, and it can also help young umpires if they become aware of some of the bad things. So now we're into it, and we can hit them with the other the right. detailed questions. What can I do to improve my strike zone? How do I fix it when, I have, when I'm having a terrible game? Stuff like that. We come up with the 10 questions, and then I just went out. I asked all the people I knew in Canada which is quite a few. There's a lot of damn good umpires in Canada, world-class umpires. I second that. But I can't just ask umpires in Canada, so I asked everybody I could find. I surfed the net, but you haven't heard that expression in a while. No. Combed Facebook, and any umpire that I found that was had some experience training or was a high-level umpire, I just sent them the list. And I also realized I needed some credibility because they don't know who the hell I am. So how can they go check me out? So I created a, a Facebook, uh, sorry, a, a website, which I'd never done before. You guys, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting a bit older. 
you guys can do that in your sleep or when you first wake up in the morning, but uh, <laughs> wasn't that easy for me. So that was another great challenge. I just loved putting that together. So you can, you can find that on uh, umpirementors.com. And for those listening, we'll throw that link in the show description. So we'll check it out. Great. You'd think if you've ever done any sales, you ever done any sales? Yes, I have. So you know that a good response rate to an ad or a request is three to five percent. And I knew that at the time, but I didn't do the math as well. And I end up getting probably about eight to 10 percent success rate, which really sounds great. But I wanted 100 umpires. Okay. Right now I have 114. They're not all going to be in the book and they're not all finished. So I might end up so my goal is to have 100. So I'm going to stick with that. Okay. But to get 100 umpires, I had to ask about 1400. A little bit of work, a little legwork there. Yeah, a lot. And I've got a full time job and I've got a family, I've got umpiring. So it's, uh, if it wasn't fun, if it wasn't exciting, uh, you know, you, you check your website and you got a response that day, that's, uh, that's gives you quite a high. So you're trying to tell me that you're not like John Steinbeck and travel around America with your dog named Charlie writing books? Not yet. Oh, fair enough. I'm going I'm to work my way up to that, but not yet. I have a little confession here to make. I'm a big fan of classic literature and especially John Steinbeck and Travels with Charlie in Search of America is probably one of my favorite books. So anytime I get to drop a reference, I take it. At least I recognize that that's an author. But Kent, when can we expect to see that book hit the shelves? Well, I started out about last February expecting that it would take two to three to four years. Right now, it's with the contributions I have and putting them in the book format, which takes a lot of time, probably an hour each at least. I'm about 85% done of that. I don't have a hundred response. I have a hundred responses, but I need, I've gone back to the people. There's about 20 people left that I need to get them to expand on their answers. So whenever that is done, then I can begin the publishing phase, optimistically hoping for sometime this summer that it'll be all done. Oh, well, well, we will keep our listeners updated. And once that drops, we will definitely update our listeners and put links in the show description. So Thanks for doing this. I look forward to reading it and good luck with it. You're quite welcome. It was fun. Okay, moving on, Kent. One of the favorite things that we do here on The Leading Edge, because we've already oh. asked enough questions, it's called 10 questions. Gonna ask oh. you a question. If I like the answer, <laughs> and if we disagree, well, at least there, as long as they're opinion questions, not knowledge questions. Okay. Well, you've been asking people lots of 10 questions. So I, I'm going to ask these ones. I don't know how much it's really knowledge. It, it, it's a little bit, it might get personal, but you'll appreciate it here in a few minutes. Okay. Coming from Prince Edward Island. I want to know how many PEI dirt shirts do you own? Zero. How can yeah, you own zero? Uh, just not my thing. Oh, come on. That's like a staple of anybody that visits the island. You got to leave with a dirt shirt. Yeah, I don't visit and I don't leave. That's what I've heard about those islanders. That's why the bridge, you got to pay to leave. So they kind of scam you to get on and then. Well, see, I always I always tell people, uh, we love to have you here. So it's free to come. Right. But we hate to see you go. So we're going to charge you if you want to go away. Okay. Well, another PEI question. Majority of these are. I'm not going to lie to you. Okay. In an average week, how many potatoes we eat? In an average week? That counts French fries? Oh, yes. So uh, potatoes, I'm going to say in an average week, including tonight, would be five. If that's not a staple of the island, what is? Oh, 
Oh, yeah, for sure. There's only one kind of French fry. What is it? Cavendish. <laughs> well, since we're talking French fries and food, what's your favorite flavor of cow's ice cream? Oh, I know this one. Gooey mooey. What's so tasty about it? It's got caramel, it's got chocolate, it's got brown sugar in it, it's got pretty much every food group you ever need. Oh, it's just healthy, and it's completely good for you. It sounds delicious. And get it in a nice waffle cone, or do you put it in a bowl, a waffle bowl? I have never had a waffle bowl. I don't think that's uh, a thing. It is. you got to have it in a cone. Oh, yeah. There's only, there's only one way to eat Hell's ice cream. Yeah. Oh, it's good. Oh, and they're in their chocolate covered chips. Sometimes they get them out here out west in the bulk oh, burn. I've only had those once because they're dangerous. They are. Anybody not in Prince Edward Island, check out your local bulk burn. Every once in a while, they'll uh, bring in some chocolate covered cow's chips. And I promise you, you'll go back for more. Yeah, you think that wouldn't work, that combination, but it's huh. it's pretty good. Sweet and salty. Oh. Have you ever met Anna Green Gables? Yeah. Yeah, she's she's uh, very bubbly, very friendly, and she's outgoing, so you, you're here any time, you're going to meet her. Times have changed on the island, but if you had a preference, would you have a can of pop or a bottle of pop? It depends. Depends on the day. No, it doesn't depend. There's only one way to drink pop. Oh, tell me. Out of a cold glass bottle. That's one of the things that was so exciting as a young lad heading over to the island by was getting a glass yes, but, bottle of pop. But back in the day, you couldn't get canned pop. That's what I'm trying um, to say. Yeah, that, that, okay, share with us a little history or story lesson here for our listeners. I don't know how deep you want to go, no. but the, the industry was controlled by a, a local uh, pop manufacturer, so they didn't want cans on the island. So the government said, okay, whatever you'd like, no cans. Anytime you went on the ferry to go to New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, you would ask all your neighbors, we're going across, do you want any canned pop? The, the pop wasn't illegal on the island, but the cans were, or, or selling or selling cans on the right. island. It wasn't illegal to have it, it was illegal to sell it here. Right. So you could go to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and bring back as many as you could, no problem. But that was, so it was because you couldn't have it, it was something that we always wanted. Right, no different than me coming over from New Brunswick and being like, I don't get cases of bottle of pop. So it was kind of exciting for me, vice versa. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, but the one thing too about those bottles of pop is you needed to have an opener. They weren't a twist off. No, not then. So can I have that buzz back? Did I, did I make a... Since Yay. we're keeping score, then we're not keeping. But the, And the one yeah. neat thing though, if you say there's a conglomerate of it or uh, controlling freak of it was that you could just take your bottle into any store and they would just swap it out for the deposit. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Now you actually have to take it back to probably a depot somewhere. So you couldn't get your, yeah. you, and you could walk into the store and go, I have six bottles. Give me my buck 50 kind of thing. That's right. You could, well, yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. Now they're only worth a nickel, but you could, you could take six bottles in and, and get a brand new full bottle. Going through the ditches, looking for bottles so that you could get yeah. a free one. Okay, you're coming from downtown Charlottetown. In your opinion, where's the best restaurant to eat if you're not from town? I'm not a good restaurant eater. If you're not from town, the best place to eat. Well, where would you just send somebody? It doesn't have to be Sims, anywhere fancy. Would, you know what? I would go to Sims. Sims. What's special about it? Uh, it's a steak. It's high end. If you're looking to spend a little money, that's the spot. Really? 
we're going to go to Prince Edward Island, surrounded by water, and you're sending them to a steakhouse. I don't eat shellfish. I don't eat fish. Oh, that was the next question. It was going to be like mussels or lobster. Yeah, neither. <laughs> wow. No, never acquired the taste for it. Okay, I have a confession to make, and this seems to be another confession, so let's just get on with it. I don't have a big taste for it either, and I get hazed for it all the time at West, but in reality, I was raised where the idea where my father said when he was a child, if you ate seafood, you were considered poor. The quote-unquote poor people would go to school with lobster sandwiches because the seafood would wash up and they would pick it off, yeah. off the beach. That's what the poor people ate, yeah. Yeah, so just like a lobster scavenging the bottom of the ocean, the quote-unquote poor people would scavenge the beach looking for seafood, and it was easy to get. It was easy. It was easy. If you had the opportunity to go to a concert in PEI, are you checking out Lenny Gallant or Eddie Quinn? Lenny Gallant. Lenny Gallant, he's definitely an island icon. Comes from North Rustico. Check out the show description. I'm going to put a link to his website. You know what, people? Take a listen to some good maritime toe-tapping music. You'll be surprised how much you really do enjoy it. Well, Lenny's been around a long time, so you build up a comfort with Lenny. Considering your longevity in the game... What do you prefer, wood bat or aluminum? Oh my God. Why would anybody use an aluminum bat? Seems like the thing to do in college baseball and NCAA. And they really shouldn't. If it wasn't for the sponsorship, somebody's going to get killed. The players, the pitchers are throwing harder. The, the batters are getting stronger and faster. It's, it's not going to end up good. I don't understand why NCAA really does not go to a wooden bat. All these kids play in wooden bat summer leagues. And there's a lot of people trying to say that they put a lot of technology in the bats that the bats come off at the same speed. Even if they come off at the exact same speed or even slightly less off the aluminum bat, the perception is going to be bad. If a pitcher gets hit in the head and gets killed, God forbid. Right. The perception is going to be it's because it was an aluminum bat. So why would you want to risk that and put yourself out there with that? Yeah, like you say, I think it's sponsorship, but what do I know? Yeah. Okay, question number 10, and it's a Kent Walker special. In your plate stands, do you use the scissors or the box? If they made me do the box stance, I don't know if I'd umpire anymore. So what are you saying? I'm saying scissors all the way. An old NL guy, are you? I've, I've heard that there have been studies. I've never actually seen the studies that it's supposed to be bad for your neck. If you get a foul ball when you're in the scissors position and they've outlawed it in the minor leagues, there are very few left in the major leagues who use scissors. Yeah. But it's so comfortable to me. I, 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 I've tried them all. I even tried the knee stance years back okay. and I've tried the box and I've tried, I've tried the Jerry Davis stance, almost got killed with that one. Yeah. That's not a good one. In my opinion, I don't like that no. one. So I've tried them all because sometimes you're working lower levels than you're, you're used to and you just got to have some fun out there. And so that's the time I use to experiment with stances. And, uh, if, if they said you couldn't use the scissors anymore, I'd have to, well, I, of course, I'd still umpire, but a little <laughs> bit of the fun would be out of it. Right. That's one of the things Kent Walker is known for around the Maritimes is Kent works the scissors, one of the few. A lot of other guys have changed over the years. The problem now at the Nationals is because it's not taught anywhere, the supervisors who are turning out more and more to be younger than me don't know how to deal with the scissors. Okay. I, I, had, uh, I had a supervisor at the, the tournament you and I were at. He watched me do a plate, and he said, uh, your head's too low. And then he said, 
you didn't miss a pitch, but your head's too low. How can my head be too low if I didn't miss a pitch? He admitted that I didn't miss a pitch. Right. As far as he was concerned, not as far as I was concerned, but as far as he was concerned, I was 100%. But he downgraded me because he didn't know how to deal with the scissors. Right. Maybe my head was too low, and he can certainly put me down for that but it could, because it shouldn't be. But uh, that's not the scissors' fault. That's my fault. Well, the scissors is a slowly dying art form, I guess. Jeff Bryan still does scissors. Jeff's only in his 30s okay. here, and he's uh, an up-and-coming young national umpire. He's done he'll, – he'll be going to Canada Games next. It'll be around for a while yet. Fair enough. Here. As far as guys in the majors, I think Jeff Nelson and then Jerry Meals might do a little modified scissors, but he... CB Buckner and there's a couple others who escape me now. And there's there's one or two who do uh, scissors for left-handed batters and box for right-handed or vice versa. Rob which, Drake, I think, is one of those yeah, guys. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and which I'll... just boggles my mind. I don't know how you can switch stances, and... but those guys are a different level anyway. Right. Andy Fletcher has gone to scissors. He used to be a box guy. Yeah, when you're when you're one of the few scissors guys, you notice these guys in the major leagues that you see on TV all the time, and you right. try and identify with them. Right. My favorite my favorite umpire of all time was Ed Rapolano, okay. who was a scissors guy. So yeah. I, I kind of copied him. Who would you say your favorite umpire is right now? Uh, Jeff Nelson. Fair enough. Again, scissors guy, but. He's a, he's a leader. He's a crew chief. Yeah. Very consistent and relaxed and works hard. Moving on from 10 questions, Kent, one of the other segments of the show we like to do is called local legends. That's where you basically share some of the local guys that are giving back or that have given back to the baseball umpire community within your area. Well, I talked about Stan Porter before Stan's Stan's gone from us now, but Stan was uh, always giving I'm working on right now. I'm trying to get him into the PEI Sports Hall of Fame because of his work. And he lived way up in Western PEI, but he was always in the Charlottetown area because that's where the action was. He was always helping out. Another another guy, again, from Western PEI was Jack McCabe. He was probably 50 years old, and he was just starting out umpiring. He maybe five years in, and he was really moving his way up. And he was trying to do a lot for the Western community, very small community. And he was trying to get them an artificial turf and all kinds of big dreams, asking me questions every day. <laughs> and and uh, Jack just, uh, I believe, was a heart attack. He had a heart attack at the start of last year and, and, oh, wow. and died. So it wow. was a, a big shock to me especially, but to that community because they're a very close community, but to the umpiring community here as well. But again, another great guy just taken from us. Uh, right now, another fellow who, who does a lot for the umpiring community is uh, Kevin McKenna. Again, he, live, he works near the Summerside area. And he, he actually won a, a national award last year yes. for the Administrator of the Year, I believe, because he also does work for the baseball community there as well as the umpire community. But he's our treasurer for our association, which requires a mountain of work. And, and Kevin does it flawlessly. He's the guy right now. He, he does a massive amount of work for us. It takes a community and it takes individuals within that community to make organizations flourish. So it's always a shout out and a thank you to all these people that give back to our local organizations. Yeah, there's, it takes a, it really takes a village. 
and uh, we have some great talent there but it's not just as umpires but as people as volunteers and hard workers and that's common all through baseball pei it's great to hear well kent that essentially wraps up this episode of the leading edge we'd like to thank you for giving us your time and answering some of the questions we have one of the last things we like to do here is give the guests the opportunity to leave with some wise words of wisdom so as a guy with a lot of national championships experience, international experience, and a guy writing a book, what would Kent Walker's wise words of wisdom be for an up-and-coming umpire? You know, that's a, it's a good question. It's one of the questions I ask in the book is, what advice would you give to a, a beginning umpire? So I've learned a lot myself from the answers from the, uh, the world-class umpires. And, and they're all different answers, which I love. They're all a lot of great answers. And there's a lot I would answer I'd be, I had five or six things on that list but above all is have fun you're gonna screw up and that's the hard part but everybody screws up at umpiring almost every game some big some small but when you're just first at it you're gonna screw up and that's where you learn it's not gonna be fun but if you can survive that part and remember that it's just a game and you should be having fun out there when you're not in trouble have fun with it and stick with it. You're gonna, you're gonna improve and you can get, it's, it's just a matter of hard work. There's nobody who can, if you can throw 95 miles an hour as a pitcher, you're gonna go somewhere. But umpiring basically just takes hard work. That's the main thing it takes. And if you can have fun with that and work hard, you're gonna go to the top. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on the next episode where we bring on the pride of Melville, Saskatchewan, a man that's been umpiring in multiple provinces for well over 40 years, and a guy that goes by the name of Uncle Gus on the Goat, Trevor Stoiko. Now, before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common rule myth that people believe the pitcher must come to the set position before a pickoff throw. Our question is, what happens if they're pitching from the full windup. Take care, everybody, and stay safe.